what is engineering management in this case? So my attitude toward management is more around identifying those stretch opportunities, you know, things which would stretch someone but not break someone. Because when it does come to recognition, engineers love recognition. I'm hoping more engineering managers decide to take up this craft. It's a very fulfilling and rewarding area for sure. This is the CTQ Smartcast, where we have conversations about up-leveling, deliberate practice, and getting future-relevant. Engineering management is often said to be the glue that you know, takes technical teams forward. In this Smartcast episode, uh, we're going to discuss the art and science of engineering management, which not a lot of people talk about. And to help us do that, we have Smriti Patel, uh, who is an engineering manager at Stripe. So that's Smriti's uh, LinkedIn introduction. But Smriti, welcome to the Smartcast and I'll let you introduce yourself as well. Thank you, Ravaran. Thank you for having me here. Uh, heard exciting things about CityQ as well. Um, Smriti Patel, I started at Stripe about two and a half years ago. Uh, here I lead two organizations, the LEAP organization, which stands for latency, efficiency, access and attribution and performance is personally very proud of the term I've coined up here uh, and the big data platform engineering. Um, across these organizations, basically I lead optimizing cloud infrastructure spend and stripes end to end latency. And the big data platform focuses on providing the right batch computation infrastructure uh, for stripes business. And before Stripe, I was at VMware for about 12 years uh, worked on the hypervisor and worked my way up the stack into data protection for the cloud. So, you know, you've been leading teams for almost a decade and before that you were an engineer. So you've been on both sides of the fence. So tell me which side of the fence was greener? So that's a good question. It's, it's been a decade. Um, I think uh, this goes a little bit about my decision-making into switching to management. Um, I was fortunate to be at VMware which sort of supported two tracks uh, by which I mean the IC track grew into uh, MTS, so the member of technical staff all the way to principal engineer and the management track at some point you could switch over at the staff engineer level into management and that went up all the way to director, senior director, VP uh, and even GM. Um, and looking back I, I would say when I was in IC the grass didn't exactly seem greener. It was just uh, a different kind of calling. And I think I went into it for the wrong reasons then, like I'd like to tell my teams these days. Um, but over the decade, I've learned that I'm staying for the right ones. Okay. So what was one thing that, you know, when you were an IC that you hate about managers that now you have a lot of sympathy for now that you're one? Actually, that's a really good question. I think there the, are the two things that come to mind. One is inconsistencies in communication flows. Um, as an IC, I'd often get really annoyed about the sequence in which folks would know about performance or performance evaluation or up levels and promotions or even things like uh, team merges or team splits or reorgs. Um, and, and now when I'm a manager, I see that it's a really hard problem. Because um, a decade down, I mean, in fact, this week I'm in the midst of rolling out um, a reorg for one of my organizations. And it is 
very, very crucial to get the communications right. Um, one of my colleagues, Julia Grace, whom I look up to, says like, you never YOLO the comms uh, because you know people are inherently so afraid of change. Uh, so especially as any moves happen, you've got to make sure you inform the right folks in the right sequence. So I think one thing that comes to mind, which I underestimated as an IC, was how managers would sort of relay that communication across. Um, and the other thing that comes to mind is repetition. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, why is my manager telling me the same thing that they told me a week ago? But, but, but now as a leader, what I see often happen is some things do need to be over-communicated. The things around you, like what's our North Star, what's our vision, where are we going? Um, what needs to happen? What are users talking about? So a lot of repetition in that regard actually enables teams to sort of have uh, add something at the back of their minds, which then enables better functioning as well. So I would call those two things out uh, where, where I've, I've got a bit more sympathy for the management section than I did previously. <laughs> So you spoke about you know making that decision perhaps not entirely for the right reasons. Yeah. So what are the right reasons and the wrong reasons for an IC to you know, consider before they become a manager? Walk me through the decision making that someone should think about. Right. So I'll share with my own personal experience. Uh, so like I alluded to, we have two tracks. Um, and at that point, uh, when I was at a senior engineer and thinking about should I evolve into staff engineering or management, um, my then manager approached me to say, hey, Smriti, uh, you're already owning a lot of the day-to-day -day responsibilities which involve mentoring junior engineers, defining the test release and strategy, uh, and even making technical decisions and partnering with stakeholders. Um, and at that point, I said yes. Uh, I said yes to switching to management because I thought, I was, I'd get more power and authority around determining the team's roadmap and vision. Um, and, and quite frankly, once I did switch to managing the team, I realized that a lot of that, at least at VMware, was not done by engineering managers. Uh, it was primarily driven by product managers and they would determine what needed to be shipped. Um, and engineering would just sort of you know, go through the motions and get that done. So engineering velocity in terms of what needed to be built wasn't a function determined purely by managers. So going back to what I would tell folks, I'd say, you know, tap into what excites and motivates you most. Because to me, while I did get in for that wrong reason, one thing that I did know about was I thoroughly enjoyed working with people and sort of knowing like, hey, what makes you tick? Uh, and sort of analyzing every person I worked with, whether it was my team or whether my it was my partners and stakeholders. Um, and looking back, this is the reason that I, I continue being an engineering manager, uh, which is making sure I grow the people I work with, whether directly or indirectly. Uh, and then seeing the, an excited, motivated set come together to solve those challenging business and technical problems. Um, and as a leader, you then focus on what is the environment you can create. And if you enjoy some of these things, then you know management is the space for you. Uh, so does it help that you are, a, you know, I think you, you mentioned, you've written that you're a generalist, uh, you know, uh, and generalists have their strengths, but they can also have their moments of uh, you know, feeling hesitant at times in terms of, you know, you're not, no longer the master of, uh, you know, one, one niche, but now suddenly you need to know a lot. So was the generalist streak always there or did it blossom after you suddenly stumbled into management? 
That's a very good question. I think it's it's almost that in the industry, sometimes the term generalist gets a negative connotation. In fact, the first feedback I had received after the last interview I did was like, hey, why'd you call yourself generalist and downplay it? Uh, and to that, my first reaction was, you know, honestly, um, I view generalists as yet another complementary function or a role to a set of team members. Uh, to me personally, general, I worked on different parts of the VMware stack. I talked about working on the hypervisor, right. then into the control plane management, and then into a disaster recovery solution, and then up into the cloud space. Um, and over that trajectory, I moved from being an IC to a manager. Um, over the two-year decade, or two-decade career that I have, I think what has enabled me to pick up any new system is my background in a variety of distributed systems. And that is something I think that is crucial, not just for managers, but also for senior ICs. Um, and to that effect, what I quite recently did at Stripe when we sort of reworked the entire engineering ladder was at the senior levels, um, the Stripe IC track goes from L1 to L6, and at L4 and plus, we call them staff engineers publicly. So for L4s and L5s, we're hitting the space where we said, hey, the shape of the problems are not all the same, but how do we still provide different career paths? And one thing that came across was we need solutions architects and product architects who can sort of stitch things together. Um, and so coming back to me personally, what I enjoy or being a generalist and what I think is now my hidden strength is this ability to sort of take on any new problem and be able to understand how it works and diagnose it and then sort of be able to relay that to what is a downstream impact? What are risks you want to think about upstream? Um, how do things integrate well? So that I think has actually held me well, where even at Stripe, I started off with uh, building up the efficiency team, which does only cloud infrastructure costs. Uh, and then I, while doing that, we said, hey, you know, latency is going to become a problem, uh, is what I told the CTO, and we started doing latency. And now I'm doing the big data platform in area which I previously had no context on. Um, but because of my generalist attitude and this love for different kinds of systems and how they fit together, it makes it easier for me to be able to diagnose risks and mitigate it upstream than that. Sorry, it was a long-winded answer. <laughs> That's that right. So, you know, generalists can, you know, diverge and they like, um, the, the good thing is that they converge, right? So because our audience is largely of generalists. I think a lot of our guests have been, uh, and I think you're right that uh, it's not a pejorative term. Uh, it's it's more of, uh, I think it's it's shorthand for someone who has different lenses to look at a, at a situation uh, through. And um, I think what, what you said resonates a lot. It's not that uh, to be a generalist, you you have to sacrifice the technical side of things. That's not what, what you're doing, I, I presume. Right, absolutely. By generalist, I mean more around not having deep domain expertise while having the ability to still understand technical systems well. So the big right. thing about engineering uh, management at Stripe is we need all managers to have deep functional expertise in whatever they're leading, whether it's breadth kind of initiatives or depth. Um, so you can be a generalist and you absolutely can do it without foregoing the technical aspect. So one thing about management is that, you know, it's it's not like you you, you can do an academic degree and uh, you know be a engineering manager the next day. 
it's more, it's largely self taught it's almost entirely self taught uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, how do you ease yourself into a, a role like this is there an equivalent of a practice ground a lab a sandbox where you can make your mistakes and you know then grow into being a an engineering management with with all the accountability that uh, comes with that so looking back what were those practice grounds for you that's another lovely question so the way i think about so how do you bootstrap your career switch mm-hmm. um the thing to consider here is more around um creating that environment of setting up the right person for that having said that there is a thing about an engineering pendulum that charity majors talks about um and this is where you then take a step back to say okay what is engineering management these days and the way i think about it, it it is no longer viewed as a promotion of sorts in an ideal systemic environment where you have both trajectories the ic track and the management switching to management is is a change in role essentially it isn't as much about a up level there is definitely you know a little bit of influence and authority associated because you know who makes how much and you're in control of up levels and promotions um but in regards to making sure that you set up the sandbox well for me what what was useful was having my manager do his own succession planning which i typically try doing when i'm setting up the next ics mm-hmm. so what i tend to do as part of every quarter is sit down with the ics on my team each of the folks on the team to say okay, where are you looking to grow your career into what are your career aspirations and then sort of building up the bench so to speak to say okay who's showing the markers for being a good manager now this becomes very crucial because um the blast radius is slightly bigger to the point about accountability uh, what happens when you've made someone a manager but they now responsible for a set of four to five other engineers um and, and is the undo or roll back a safe roll back so to speak right so what you want to do is then set up the right person up for success there and in doing so you then sort of front load it uh, and i've seen different companies do it differently they have a pilot or a probation period where they will proxy managing the team seeing how they go or they could be slightly lower risk kind of opportunities where you have a couple of interns which you could manage for about a quarter to say okay how are you giving feedback how are you growing the person how are you responsible for project management and sort of once you've identified the markers on your team about who would like to make that switch you then set them up through these you know pilot opportunities to see how they are doing and once you then evaluate whether they still want to take on a bigger role uh, and actually make the transition once they make that decision you then want to support them through ongoing mentoring and coaching and make sure that they set up for success having said that you know it, it's it's not an un, it's not uh, unreasonable to expect them to change their mind in fact i worked with a few ics who switched into management and who've now switched back to say hey i like writing code all day long and not as much debugging people uh, and systems so to speak uh, so people do make this switch a lot more these days as well i like the phrase uh, debugging people because in some sense um, it's almost the same mindset as uh, it's a system that you're trying to you know trying to figure out the innards of but but one big difference when you, be, you know go from an ic to a manager is that uh, it's almost like you're uh, you're at a you know you're separated from 
direct levers that you can kind of push and pull and uh, it's almost like being learning to be a puppeteer of sorts um, so how do you debug systems uh, trying to figure out what is going wrong when uh, you can't sit and get your hands dirty it's like in there's a level of indirection that you have to work with so it depends is the short answer right so i lead about seven teams and each team is in its own state so tuckman's got four to five models which is you know you are either forming storming norming performing and each of my seven teams in its is in its own team maturity what that translates to is you've got people with individual strengths and areas of improvement and they get together on some common footing and hopefully the common footing is a common vision which you already set up for the team um, and, and on having said that, you want to you want to make sure that each brings what they bring best. The indirection, I think, what is what becomes most crucial is then identifying, depending on the team and depending on their deliverables and individual problems, where are individuals at. So one thing I rely very heavily on is my one-on-ones. Um, in my one-on-ones is where I try to sussing out what are individual problems that folks are going through. And this is where sort of the reflective listening comes a lot at play, which is, um, I had an engineer come, come to me last week and they're like, hey, Smriti, you know, th this is this project is required to be delivered in by summer 2021. And I'm working with this other engineer and I'm giving them feedback that they're not performing and they need to take on these five Jira items and they're lagging behind. Uh, and, and, and I've developed a complexity which is gonna derail this project and I said, okay, let's slow down okay so big part of it is then sort of doing that reflective listening to say hey what i'm hearing you say is and then you sort of do the split tracking which i love which i picked up from jill welzer which is around there, there are clearly multiple things going on so identifying what is sort of under the surface and then analyzing what is most crucial for the other person to help resolve and then putting your coaching hat on to see, okay, how do you then identify whether it's a it's a feedback problem that the person has working with others, or is it a systemic issue around a technical challenge for the design that they have at mind in mind, or is it more around the constraints that they're optimizing for? Like they, they brought up the summer 2021 deadline. Is that a constraint which is actually something you want to reinforce mm. or Last but not the least, additional support through people that you can then provide them with. So coming back to how do you then debug systems of people, I think it depends a lot upon understanding where each individual is coming from and then being able to zoom out to say, okay, what are the team's deliverables and what are the big things that the team is accountable for? And then debugging that has its, has its own bad stuff, which we could go into depending on what the shape of the problem is. Right. Uh, since you mentioned one-on-ones, uh, I know it's a, you know, every manager does that, but different people deal with it uh, in their own style. Uh, is there a tip or is there something that you, is, it's your go-to way of running a one-to-one-on-one? -on -one? So for me, again, I think I, I said it in the previous question, which is it comes back to listening very, very carefully and doing that reflective listening. I think something which I have had to especially uh, 
pay extra attention to in 2020 because everything's been Zoom friendly. Uh, and there are tons of other notifications popping on on Slack and your Gmails and everything where you're like, okay, you know, I'm just tempted to sort of look elsewhere and see what I should respond to, right? And, you know, clearly the camera captures your eye movement, right? So I think one big thing around one-on-ones is being fully present and listening reflectively. And while you're doing that, I think being able to decouple what is the person trying to tell you and what are they not telling you in terms of behind the scenes and being able to suss that out. Um, and what I found being most effective is sort of seeing it back to them, which is like, hey, what I'm hearing you say is, um, and in that sort of not making assumptions about you know, your own state of mind. Uh, and, and there what helps is curiosity, right? Don't, don't uh, listen, what, what, what does that say, you know, uh, seek to understand, not be understood. Um, and focusing on that then enables you to drive your own mental model of where the person's coming from. So incidentally, one of our previous guests was a, is a child psychiatrist. Okay. So, you know, one thing he spoke about was how, you know, he's now seeing patients not in his clinic, but mm -hmm. at their homes. And uh, so that gave, I mean, that, you know, he said that it brought a different dimension to his conversations because uh, whatever said and done, you know, seeing people in, in an environment that was different, uh, that was their environment, taught him a lot of new things about patients that he'd known for a long time. And things you mentioned about, you know, listening, uh, you know, saying things back, paraphrasing, these are all standard you know, tools and tricks that uh, these guys are taught to harness um, and makes a huge difference, right? And uh, uh, so are there a bunch of things, you know, uh, we, we've sp spoken a little bit about the mindset of a manager, but uh, from a skills point of view, is there something that you wish, you know, went earlier or, you know, managers everywhere were taught almost like, you know, being a counselor, being a, being a psychologist, a psychiatrist, uh, is there something that that you've taught yourself that you wish more people would know about? I think to me, uh, the things that come to mind, one is growth mindset, which I wish I myself had picked up earlier. Uh, there is a very good book on that, where there's a fixed mindset versus growth mindset, which talks about... Um, you know, just your attitude toward how you deal with failure and consequently the kinds of risks you take and you probably are audience is aware of it, so I won't go much into it. But, but I think where that becomes very crucial is there's this camp of thought around management, which is the 80-20, mm -hmm. uh, focus on the 20% of your team and give them 80% of your problems and, you know, just like focus on the high performance, so to speak. Um, I sort of like to sort of like raise the mean as well. Uh, and that's where growth mindset comes into play, which is evaluating what is holding someone behind. Um, and then clubbing that with having stretch opportunities identified for each. So I think at the meta level, I would say being able to yourself see the power of mindset and then be able to see that in others um, and weed that out. Uh, so, so that is one big thing I'd call out. And the other bit is this ability to be very clear and precise in giving feedback. Um, because that is at the heart of growing people then. Because if you're sort of all over the place in what you're trying to communicate in areas you want the other person to grow, 
or even positive reinforcement if you want to say hey good job right but but that doesn't communicate much um so i would say the second thing i would call and this is another good book by kim scott which is radical candor which talks a lot about how you give that feedback so those are two things that have held well for me at the meta level um of sort of working with people all right uh so i i read an interview of yours where you said that you know you tell a lot of your reports that once i begin managing you i'm going to manage you for for life okay so uh, so uh, how do people respond to that ah uh, <laughs> uh, they don't think i'm very creepy <laughs> when i just say that so so i think so here's where uh, so my attitude toward management is more around how do i understand uh, each of my reports into what makes them tick and this is the long range view toward it which is it doesn't matter whether you report to me directly or to one of my teams um what what i will be there to support you throughout is no matter whether i have opportunities on my team ideally i do but if not i know you well enough to be able to club you with the right role whether at a different team in the same company or even outside um and there in comes the second element which is the advocacy and sponsorship what i've noticed over the two decades is folks who have leaps and bounds jump in their jumps in their career come a lot because you know folks punch up a lot um and those opportunities are typically not handed out equitably across everybody on your team right uh, and this is where you have this tech thing around the homogeneity of networks i personally i'm a woman um and <laughs> i identify as one and i've had my fair share where access to opportunities ended up you know there being a glass ceiling to it so the another thing i very actively do for my teams is identifying those stretch opportunities you know things which would stretch someone but not break someone uh, which are catered and in line to their career aspirations and this is where it is about you know there's a long term view to how i manage you and it could sometimes be like hey it is just not a fit anymore both ways in which case for me it's like do they land well in their next role and then sort of doing the reference checks and things like that to support them going out and over the past teams that i have managed i have folks reaching out every now and then to say hey how are you doing you know like are you still growing uh, and that's the regular check ins that i do to make sure you know folks are on track right okay so um now there are some managers who sort of think that you know over time they should become less uh, i mean it's almost like you look at making your role redundant that's that's one view i've heard from some people where they say that i empower my team to the extent that they really don't uh, need me um so uh, but but clearly what you've said so far suggests that Uh, you know a man a good manager is is someone that has a very strong role to play um, and uh, it's not as if you're there to kind of hand hold them every day that, that is not what you see your your role as uh, it is about pretty much about taking them to that that next level whenever they're ready for it or and they have the right opportunities for that so is is that is that fair to say about your view of management uh yes and i think a couple of things i would add there one is so there are three things that i attribute core to engineering management one is building and building nurturing fostering high performing teams 
Now, what does that mean, right? There is this whole, are you hiring the right set of folks? Are you hiring the folks with the complementary skill sets? Are they diverse enough? Um, and are you setting them up for success? So a lot of this around building teams is not an individual point. And this is where managers can make sure they're setting up the teams for success by making sure that every new addition to the team or folks who are leaving the team, are the, it, the right set of individuals are coming together to actually form the team. Um, the second bit is then the, the engineering itself, which is what are you building? The alignment with your product, alignment with your stakeholders, alignment with the business in identifying that the, the complexity of the problems you have and the business value your team needs to deliver is actually at par with what someone's expecting out of you. Um, talking about Stripe specifically, Stripe scaling so fast that wherever you look, there are tons of fun problems to solve, right? So what becomes super crucial then is to, is to be very laser focused about solving the right problem at the right time and making sure you know the next 18 months actually hold up well. The second key part where I think engineering managers can and should make a difference is in identifying the what, aligning the stakeholders with it and making sure the team then has the ability to operate where they are meeting those metrics or the business value. And last but not the least, this is where it's about bridging the gap between teams and um, upper leadership, right? Which is about, it's not just about managing down, but it's managing up and across as well. Because it could just, and this is where it's about, you know, like the what that you're building. Like what is your feedback loop into providing visibility into what the team is doing? Um, at Stripe, we do quarterly business reviews. And so making sure as an engineering manager that my teams are well represented at the org level function to make sure that their impact does get recognized. So a lot of that involves you know, advocacy and sponsorship because when it does come to recognition, engineers love recognition. So how do you sort of create the systems to support it? So I would say taking a step back and to summarize, it would be these three things where engineer ma engineering managers uh, can make a difference the building teams, making sure the engineers are focused on the right problems for a clear vision. And last but not the least, bridging the gap with stakeholders and leadership. Okay, so I have a couple of questions on you know how managers foster culture. But before that, what we usually do in, in these smart casts is to ask you a quiz question. Okay, and Excellent. if you uh, get it right, there is something at stake as well. So gear, gear up for this one. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna suck it out. Okay, but go so, on. <laughs> the good thing is that you know we are very, very friendly with hints. So we'll we'll help you get the answers. You know, we'll do what you do for your teams. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so okay. So you've you've heard of this is a management principle, but a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. So okay. this suggests uh, this uh, management principle states that companies tend to systematically promote incompetent employees to management to get them out of everyone else's way. So what is this principle called? Okay. There is actually and a name for it. Absolutely. <laughs> and the name is something that you've heard of. And this is tongue in cheek. And I'll give you a hint. Uh, this is named after a fictional character. Oh my gosh. Uh, the fictional character. Fictional character. So think of a fictional character in the world of Offices and management, that's that's your hint. Dilbert! Absolutely right. So, uh, so Scott Adams coined the Dilbert principle. Uh, he actually had a Wall Street Journal ar uh, article on this and 
it became a, a book and you know you you can make money coining uh, management principles that that resonates a lot because for <laughs> every for, for every good manager i've met i've met at least 10x bad ones okay so this definitely <laughs> because you know the meme is there for a reason right so uh, you know there is this uh, not so secret fantasy of you know that engineers have or individual contributors sometimes have where they live in a managerless world right they have all the autonomy in the world and life couldn't be better but okay so tell me why managers are still going to be around for say the next decade Ah, uh, I think the managers are basically dreaming about a managerless world. I think you've already lost <laughs> because, because you clearly have to improve something about the system. Uh, I think why managers might be around one is pure scale, hmm. right? Uh, this is about I don't want to call it like herding cattle, but I think there is a uh, an analogy to. how do you set up the right set of folks bring them together to work magic and make sure you create the environment of trust and safety where they can work with each other and it's a lot about then making sure that the systems around are incentivizing and disincentivizing the right and the wrong behavior so to speak right because what is culture at the end of the day um who is this i think uh, i'm sure i'm going to attribute it incorrectly but one of my colleagues talked about culture is the behaviors you reward and punish and it's not to consider the transactional element about it but this is a lot around what is the implicit stuff that you that you that you are allowing happen or not disallowing so to speak right and and that is where engineering managers can and should play a very important role right i for once see it as a craft in many ways which is about the responsibility in creating those systemic environments which allow every individual to succeed and make the most of what they have to offer because you know like what even is the point of getting these talented interview uh, people whom you interview for 8 hours and put them through a crazy process when you're just going to get them in the door and have them you know screw up their lives right so, so if left to their own devices i think what is then important especially as you scale um and you might not need your first engineering manager until your your org size is 4 or even 40 but when you start looking at say 400 imagine a set of 400 engineers left to their own beautiful devices what do you think it's going to get right and and that is where engineering managers can make a difference having said that i will preface that to say not all do a good job of it right there are many of us who who are stumbling and who would with the right support can do a lot better but that requires analyzing what engineering managers can uniquely do right and it is around some of the things that i earlier talked about which is building and hiring teams creating the environments where folks can work on the right set of problems and then bridging gaps across your stakeholders and the business right it almost sounds like you know being a, a conductor of a orchestra in some sense right you have a lot of talented musicians but to get them to be in tune it it does take someone with the baton Yeah. That's a beautiful analogy. I love it. I'm going to use it somewhere. <laughs> sure. Thanks. So, uh, um, you know, since uh, I, I've heard a little bit about how companies like Stripe and Amazon, you know, you guys are uh, 
taking a writing led approach to communication and that's what we've heard uh, where you know unlike older companies um, uh, it's it's about putting things down on paper get giving yourself the time to think through problems and uh, it that's something that resonates a lot with us i choose to think though we're definitely much smaller uh, we've been remote first from day one and we love writing so we you know we, we take our time and uh, everything is in so tell me a little bit about what do you see are the the advantages and also the disadvantages is does it slow you down is there an impatience in among some people when it comes to writing culture so tell me a little bit about that um so this year especially has been uniquely different for all of tech right so for the entire world so to speak uh, and one thing many companies have had to sort of scrambling uh, to do was to sort of suddenly change their working norms uh, from a physical post to a remote location uh, stripe actually it was it was a tad bit easier in that sense because you know, as you alluded to we are a very written heavy culture right and and that is one thing i personally love about stripe is everything is about first principle i think a lot of my own management principles were better baked in thought and communication because i was like okay why are some of these things working as they do and so being able to sort of write some of that down and provides that clarity in thought um what it also then enables is is better remote communication and collaboration mm-hmm. so i think some of the obvious advantages are that you can tap into a skill set which is now global because you no longer you know required to sort of hire in either san francisco or london or tokyo or where else right and you can tap into a global workforce which is a huge benefit if you actually can streamline some of that communication collaboration make it happen there having considered that obviously different time zones and all adds its own challenges but keeping that aside i think coming back to the the beauty of written communication uh, what it also front front loads is as we write we, we clear a lot of our own thinking um, and there are personalities where they think as they speak which is me um, and there are personalities which think and then they speak right and what what often happens in discussions is if these two personalities meet uh, one or both are left frustrated at the end of such discussions um, and i think what written first kind of culture then enables is for such individuals to think through their thoughts before they meet to then so can now let's get together to discuss some of the aspects so in that i would say it it actually front loads some of the back and forth and the discussion and the debate uh, and, and in fact even promotes agility and some of the downsides that come to mind i think are more around the the, the the dual part of the same coin which is as you're tapping into a global workforce english may not be the first written language right. and having said that you know written comms obviously favor those Who, who got a leg up, so to speak, in terms of their writing, right? So I have seen a few engineers struggle in terms of sort of putting their thought down onto paper, uh, and then struggle with okay, am I good enough? And an imposter syndrome around that, uh, and that is something as engineering managers you want to look out for to make sure you know, someone who's got the potential, who's got the talent, who's got the thoughts, still can communicate effectively, even in a written post. Right. um so since we're talking about writing um i also wanted to know you know these days because organizations are so heavily 
uh, networked, right? Uh, it, it, especially when they're distributed and then you have also an external site to one's network now. Um, how do you get, so you know, traditionally engineers have thought to be a, you know, a little, they poo-poo the idea of say personal branding or being, you know, kind of having the spotlight shown on you. But that's kind of, you know, when you do your advocacy for uh, engineers to give them their, their, their due, uh, what is it that people are uh, should do for themselves, you know, in terms of say, promoting themselves without it being seen as a bad word? So that's a very good question. In fact, this is one of the things I would tell my younger self. Um, and now I have to very consciously make the time for is the personal brand. Now, what does it mean as times have evolved? Um, to me personally, it's a lot about how can you do that self-advocacy that you talked about. Uh, at Stripe, we have uh, we had Julia Evans who created this brag doc template, right? Which is how do you promote your own work and why is that important? I think the, the why behind it is something which is useful to identify. Uh, so I would say at the personal level, having engineers focus on personal brand and what that means to you, what means to them, uh, is a factor of tapping into how does each like to be rewarded and recognized. And each of us have our own individual preferences, right? Um, and being able to then translate our, I need recognition from my peers, or it could be in terms of, hey, I need the CEO of the company to call me out goes a long way in also sort of letting me as their manager know, ah, these are opportunities I should look forward to, to be able to recognize the impact. And I think that's why some of the personal introspection into what are ways I want to be recognized goes into some of the personal branding. Uh, for some, it is about, I've worked with one of the engineers, which was about, hey, I need to improve my writing because that's right, we need to write to be successful. Uh, and I also want to publish something out there. Um, so we worked on a very concrete plan to say, okay, you know, what are the two technical blogs you're going to release either as far as Stripe or through not? Um, so your self-advocacy can come not just in terms of the impact you've had, but also in terms of your knowledge, your experiences, and through conference talks or through technical publications. Um, if you zoom out a little bit, I also think about what does the branding for your team look like? And in terms of that, the way I think about it is what is your, what is the face of your team, so to speak? Um, and Stripe is also very heavy into metrics, so to speak. So each team has its own charter and a vision statement and a mission statement. And you have the metric which defines how you move the needle for the company. And being able to then stitch that narrative or story around this is where it was. Like, for example, my latency performance team owns Stripe-wide uh, the P999 latency metric and being able to say, here's where it was, here are the five things the team did, and this is how it dropped. And this is the impact it had on customers is a very compelling story. Um, at that point, if I were to then sit in an up-level cycle and say, hey, you remember engineer X moved this metric this way, automatically tells the brand. <laughs> so I think about it as you know individual branding, which starts with identifying what individuals want to be recognized for, and then zooming out into what the team branding looks like in terms of you know what are the metrics they want to be recognized for. So I think there's a factor of both. That's quite fascinating because in some sense, uh, engineers have got to be aware of, of something called as the brand. You know, not a lot of people speak that language that vocabulary isn't something that comes naturally or you have exposure to. So, so what I'm taking away is that uh, 
here is a way for people to understand how not just what they do helps the you know the, their team their company but also to be able to articulate that and be able to tell that story uh, with the help of data and, and anecdote whatever it be but i think the awareness and that vocabulary is is quite fascinating because i don't think a lot of uh, companies and teams speak that that language right and ramana that, that is something i have learned in fact i ran this fads which was feedback as a service uh, at stripe because i was like hey i want to let engineers know how to talk about the impact of the work they had so at stripe the performance evaluation happens every semester so to speak every six months and then there is a engineers write their self evals we have peer evals we have manager evals and then we do calibration where managers sit together and look through all the 1200 engineers and you know it happens in multiple over multiple weeks um and the one thing that is common which keeps coming up in these questions is what is the impact they drove and quite often what i've seen engineers do is they just so myopic and obviously you know like well intentioned but they spend so much time thinking about a problem is like what did i solve right so we'll talk about the technology we'll talk about the problem you solved but i think zoom out to your point of you know what is the story it's telling what is the before and after look like as a result of that work becomes super crucial in being able to articulate the impact of why did you even do this um and i think that goes a long way into a longer term career uh, trajectory about where do i want to now head into given the scope and influence uh, that i want to lead over the years to come and and do you think that's where also the writing culture helps because now you you're not in that mode where after 6 months you're wondering what is it that i did and you you can only remember what you did in the last one week exactly and then that is where what, what i also like to do for all uh, my reports is through one on ones we get a personal charter or a brag dog going to say okay you know what have you shipped because many times engineers are also helping other cross company initiatives and sort of having a good change log so to speak of that enables your you know half year evaluation to say hey you remember you got that feedback from engineer x for helping them out let's add that to the packet so you're aware of the recognition it's a moment to celebrate some of the small wins which you forget about um and what it also then helps you is you're more intentional into where you want to be right so you're not looking back a year down and like you know, what was this year of my life like all of us are here for probably a 40 year career uh hopefully some of us can retire way sooner <laughs> but if you can't right or if you just enjoy it you still want to be able to say where am i going and am i going in the right direction right like what's your north star so the written culture adds up to it being intentional about it helps up but being able to articulate it is like the cherry on top of the cake so to speak right okay we have about 8 minutes left so i want to switch uh, or or you know shift the light spotlight on on you uh, away from your team so uh, you know you spoke about a few books you spoke about radical candor you spoke about a few frameworks uh so tell me a little bit about what i call the curiosity diet right uh, uh what are you reading these days uh, what are you listening to these days and more importantly who who gave you the time to do all this right that's, that's a very good question so i'll be very honest um 
over the last few weeks, I'm not reading or listening anything other than stuff around the big data platform because it's a new org I've taken up. And as a generalist, this is a new area for me to learn. So all my reading is about this domain and sort of knowing what the best in class is doing. Um, so it is not related to management, but more about picking up my functional expertise. Um, and in that, I've taken up a couple of courses online. But other than that, I think what you touched upon is oh, how do I make the time for it? Uh, I have two boys, five and two, and in the pandemic, they've been absolute nuts as much as I love them. Uh, so making that time is, is very hard. And it, it needs to be a very, very conscious decision. Um, I, for one, do the same exercise that I do for folks on my team, which is what does my one year look like? So every October, November, I sit down and I say, okay, what are my next 12 months? Imagine it's November 2021. What do I want to be true in Smriti's life? And it's a holistic view, not just about work, but also my family, my hobbies, my growth. Um, and having identified that, what I then do is break it up into roughly quarter over quarter. And I have a very aggressive spreadsheet where I list down week over week. And I do like this month here are the big things I want to accomplish. And then I do a review at the end of the month before the next one comes up. And every three months, I'm like, okay, am I trending to my annual goals? So the reason I say all this is as a manager, it's very easy to sort of lose track of your time. Like for instance, today, I, I, I started the day talking to legal about immigration from Russia. I talked to a candidate from Russia who wants to move to London. I presented at the company all hands about latency. I'm talking to you, hoping we get more engineering managers interested in this realm. And I have a bunch of other stuff as well, right? So it's very easy to sort of lose track of time. So what I do is I calendar defrag very actively, use color codes and all that which are like then, you know, columnized based on what are areas of, or buckets that I want to grow in. And every Wednesday, thanks to Stripe having a no meeting day, I focus on about two to three hours of just learning something new. Um, and in that, some uh, lead dev is this recent uh, online platform, which has got tons of really good, very practical content um, that has started over uh, this year, which I absolutely love. And there's just so much good stuff to learn there. Uh, it, it sounds like you've turned your managerial acumen, you know, to, to your own life in, in a sense. So uh, it's good to hear you walk the talk, right? It's not just for someone else. <laughs> oh, yes. And I think, and then you learn from it because you know what works and what doesn't, right? I started with like, having a Kanban board of like, okay, this is what I want my week to. And pretty soon I'm like, hey, this isn't working, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, am I trending in the right direction? And I realized, okay, a five-year career is way too long to think about in today's day and age. So I'll at least start with what does 12 months look like? So I think walking the talk also helps correct your own, you know, patterns and practices and then hopefully others learn from your mistakes. So, so for someone who's interested in, you know, learning a few of these mental models, these ideas, uh, what are your top three books that you usually recommend to people? I think top three books come to mind, Lara Hogan's um, Resilient Management. She's got very practical tips around team bonding, team forming, uh, how to do one-on-ones, a lot of good content in that. So I would recommend Lara Hogan's Resilient Management for that. Um, I spoke about Kim Scott's radical candor because for a successful engineering manager, you really have got to nail down how you give feedback and keep reinforcing the good stuff while calling out areas of improvement. Um, and a third bit around the meta level stuff around what you're building, how you track it. Uh, I like Dr. Nicole Forsgren's Forsgren's 
uh, accelerate, which is a very metric-centric approach. And I think especially uh, you alluded to it earlier when you said engineers don't quite enjoy the, the concept of metrics, right? It, it makes it seem very like an accountant-focused view. Um, but I think this book, that's why it captures very well what systemic things have to happen and how metrics can actually enable your decision-making, your prioritization, and in fact, even the impact of what you are delivering. Hmm. I would call out those three as the top three that come. Sure, that, that's that's a good, good place to start. Um, so in, uh, in the last couple of questions, if you, you know, looking ahead, what are the top you know, kind of trends? It could be technology trends, it could be management trends. Uh, what do you have your eye out on for? I think to me, the biggest thing looking 2021 and beyond is we've evaluated a lot of remote success or not or productivity wins mm -hmm. um, with the lens of working in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think the two needn't be conflated. So to me, one thing that I'm actually looking for is what are longer term sustainable mm -hmm. and systematic changes to working remotely. Um, and consequently, what are the implications of, you know, like Zoom or things like that to enable team collaboration, team communication, and just personal health. So for me, a lot of, you know, how all of this lands in a normal world is, is going to be key to how we actually sort of generalize to our is this tech working mm. in a healthy sustainable way even post pandemic because we are not in normal times it's been a long stretch and it is going to be a long stretch into 2021 but it is not going to be the norm and, and then having engineering practices which are more dedicated towards the norm than the exception uh, is something that I'm watching out for to see what the downstream implications might be or good lessons to learn, so to speak. Right. So before I ask my final question, I may, I did mention that there was something at stake with the question, the, the, the quiz question. So um, we we have a couple of, uh, you know, we, we run a couple of groups around daily reading and spotting the future. So we'll give you one uh, slot for that, that you can give to someone. You can use it for yourself or you can give it to someone as well. So that's your prize for getting the Dilbert principle right. Thank you, Rahul. Yeah. Thank you. That was a surprise. That's 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 our pleasure. Um, last last question is, uh, you know, twenty uh, twenty, as you said, a year of change, disruption, all that. What was one thing that stayed the same? That you know, you look back and said, "Wow, I, I you know, that that stayed exactly the same." And you know, everybody's talking about change, but here is something that that stayed just the same. Uh, I think it's it's resilience. It comes down to who we are as people mm. and what what makes us tick. And I think then focusing on people consequently, right? Because technology will pass, you know, the norms, the practices, the working styles pass. But I think what stays constant is, you know, people being flexible, adaptable, resilient, and knowing that, you know, we've got more. And that's why I love Obama's audacity or hope, uh, right? Because it, it talks about our inherent spirit to sort of get through this and do what needs to be done. So on that wise and optimistic note, Sweetie <laughs> Patel, thank you so much for, for your hour with us. We learned a lot. Uh, we'll catch you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ramanan, for the opportunity. Take care and good luck. And hoping more engineering managers decide to take up this craft. It's a very fulfilling and rewarding area for sure. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, Mithi. If you want to get into the habit of reading, 
or explore diverse topics that you wouldn't have read otherwise, CTQ Compounds is for you. Compounds are expertly curated by us and are a great way to slip in 15 minutes of reading non-fiction every day. The Future Stack Compound is perfect for anyone with their eye on the future. It gives you a regular dose of relevant info to keep you current and relevant in the future to come. For how you can be a part of a compound, go to ctqcompounds.com. You can also see what our compound members have to say about their experience there. That's ctqcompounds.com. This is the CTQ Smartcast, where we have conversations about up-leveling, deliberate practice, and getting future relevant. 